You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging deep into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Sean Sherman is an Oglala Lakota chef based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. He has 27 years of cooking experience and is focused on revitalizing Native American cuisine in a modern context. His team of chefs, ethnobotanists, and food lovers of all sorts cook completely outside of the modern American food sourcing system. They forage for wild plants such as wood sorrel, cypress, and chokecherry. They buy meat and produce from indigenous regional growers and invent new ingredients, techniques, and flavors regularly. Sherman's food is delicious, his plating is beautiful, and his knowledge is beyond that of most other American chefs. His company is called The Sioux Chef, and they just released a cookbook, are launching a restaurant, and starting a regional indigenous food hub through a new organization called Natives. Sean Sherman is a striking human, kind, smart, and wonderful to witness. This episode of The Table Underground is co-hosted with the Chewing the Fat series of the Yale Sustainable Food Program. We were all honored to speak with and learn from this exceptional chef who's healing some of the destruction of colonialism by re-identifying what North American cuisine is and by rebuilding the indigenous food system to support it. Hello, my name is Noah Schlager. I'm a student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And I'm Tegan Engel, the host of the radio show and podcast and website, The Table Underground. You're listening to a special joint episode of Chewing the Fat, a podcast of the Yale Sustainable Food Program and The Table Underground. And today we're so honored and excited to have Chef Sean Sherman, founder of the company The Sioux Chef. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. So happy you're here. Thanks. So we want to get started with... um, how did you get to this place in your life and work, and what drove you to this passion to revitalize indigenous foods? Um, so it's been a long path, and um, I've been on it for a while now. Uh, when I had the epiphany moment of really focusing on indigenous food systems and moving forward, um, looking backwards at that point, I'd realized that a lot of points in my life were already le- leading me into that direction. So really, it just starts from the very beginning of just growing up on Pine Ridge and being, you know, a member of the Oglala Lakota and all my family, both my parents from Pine Ridge, my grandparents are, you know, from around Pine Ridge Reservation and and so forth. Um, So, you know, getting into culinary started pretty young for me because I was just 13 when I started working in restaurants and um, worked all through high school and college and after college uh, moved to Minneapolis and started working in restaurants again or continue to work in restaurants but since I'd already had quite a few years of experience I just kind of worked my way upwards and partway through well a few years into my career as an executive chef at various restaurants throughout Minneapolis um, I was living in Mexico at the time in a small beach town called San Pancho or San Francisco officially but the locals just call it San Pancho and it's on the Nayarit coast on the Pacific and there was a group of um, Huichol, which is the indigenous one of the indigenous groups of that Nayarit area right next to Jalisco, 
Um, and I just found them so interesting and I started researching and I just saw so many cool similarities and commonalities between, um, their ways and our ways. And it, it just kind of dawned on me that we're just like distant indigenous cousins is all. Um, but I loved the commonalities in their artwork and their beadwork and they had sweats just like we did. Um, and just the, the humor that they, um, had naturally, um, and it just all of a sudden dawned on me that I should have been studying my own heritage for, you know, so long. Cause I'd been really, I'd really delved into so many other cultures. I was just always so curious. So learning as much as I could about, um, various African cuisines or Japanese cuisines or European cuisines or whatever my interest was swaying. Um, and I realized I just really didn't know that much about indigenous foods. And when I started looking, I realized there was very little work on it out there. Really. It was a lot of generalized work work and it was a lot of work that was uh, mixed in with a lot of colonial ingredients and I really wanted to understand like what were my ancestors eating before you know colonial foodways had anything to do with um, you know adding to what they already had so I just really wanted to find out like what were they putting away in those ancestral pantries and storing away for the winter and the wild food knowledge and um, you know we're the agricultural scene on the Dakota Plains and, you know, just trying to understand all of it. So that's kind of what shot me on that path. And ever since I've been on that path, I've just been moving in that direction. And after opening up the sous chef in 2014 officially um, and quitting my full-time paid job and starting to work for myself, um, you know, it was really just a leap of faith. And, you know, it's really taken me so far. I've been able to learn and grow so much more just by um, submersing myself into all of it. Yeah. Can you tell us a little when you started learning about the indigenous foods, in addition to kind of researching, like historical researching or or kind of the ethnobotany part of it, what were some of the living, who were some of the living people who had some of that knowledge that you learned from? Yeah, well, I did have to look in many different areas because there wasn't, you know, just a single source to get everything from. You know, there wasn't an almanac out there on indigenous foodways or anything. Um, so it did. I started like kind of part of it. I just saw the path of what I had to really start to learn. So I started learning a lot about wild foods and ethnobotany. I started really researching a lot more about regional histories. Um, I started really delving into um, the ag native agricultural histories, which are so loosely put together throughout our history still today. Um, and, you know, I also started reaching out to a lot of my own family members because I have quite a bit of family that was born and raised on Pine Ridge and has, you know, lived there throughout ever since the 30s, 20s and 30s, basically, some of the elders, um, and really getting some of their perspectives and some of their memories about what was life like on, on the reservation and, you know, what memories did they have of indigenous foods, um, things that were obviously like super traditional and not, um, you know, mixed in with uh, reservation systems or anything like that um, and starting to talk. So um, a lot of my family helped me out. And as we've been able to move around the country and go to many different areas and, many, and visit many different tribal regions um, and experience just like the food and the landscape and the history of all these other areas, it's also helped, um, especially being able to do food in those regions because one of the best parts about being able to do an all-traditional dinner 
in a certain region that's focusing on regional indigenous fare, um, you know, taking in mind the land, the season, and the culture, and the history of the land that we're on, and putting together a dinner that really represents that, and being able to share that with elders in those communities. Um, it's really interesting to talk to a lot of those elders at the end of the dinner because some of these foods um, just haven't been around for a long time because of how colonialism has affected our food systems. And for them to have like this outpouring of ancestral memory to come through them after tasting these foods that they haven't really tried since some of them were kids and memories of their grandparents' foods and things like that. Um, And it's just, you know, so great to hear a lot of those old stories about remembering the paths in the forests where the foods were or how to collect certain plants in the lakes or, you know, little uh, shellfish along the ocean, just depending on which area Mm -hmm. we're in. But, you know, food unlocks a lot of those memories and it's important to like put a lot of this traditional food back into those areas. Are there some specific stories that you remember of like certain ingredients that triggered that in somebody? Um, you know, since we're, since, I mean, it's so different, you know, there's so much diversity because we've been, we've been all over. So we've been lucky to have that experience and, you know, being like in Northern Minnesota um, and utilizing some of these just wild ingredients or putting things like cedar in the food um, and stuff like that. And it just unlocks certain memories for certain people. Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard for me to pinpoint one because there's been, there's been a lot. And, you know, I even purchased my own recording equipment just to start to um, record some of those stories that people who with people who want to share some of those things because it's such beautiful knowledge that we can hopefully be able to pass down still yeah I was going to ask you kind of how for you as you transitioned from eating commodity foods and western foods like flour and dairy and sugar and canned foods that you kind of grew up with on the reservation and then eating restaurant food that you were eating while you were cooking um, how did this transform how did eating indigenous foods and eating very kind of wild foraged foods and seasonal foods transform how you felt about yourself or in connection with your heritage? You know, I think the best part about the foods is the health aspect to it all. So when we're looking at indigenous food systems throughout North America, since that's our main study, um, is you see a lot of the commonality in how just the health aspect of it all, because it becomes this almost perfect diet of really low glycemic foods, um, immense amount of plant diversity, lots of great proteins, you know, including like insect proteins and things like that, um, and just really clean, simple foods. And we always tell people, like when we have these big dinners, like this food will just sit so well with you, like you won't feel bloated and you won't feel so full. You'll feel energized because it's just great energy food. And we look at how indigenous cultures and how healthy they were before they were removed from their indigenous food systems because it was thousands of years of experience um, of being able to eat an almost perfect diet um, and then being moved on to a highly processed, oversalted, saturated fats, poor sugars diet where we see, you know, the after effect of that kind of diet in, in real time. And it's, you know, horrific to see the amount of diabetes that are in a lot of small indigenous communities and obesity and heart disease. Um, for some, you know, groups that didn't even have tooth decay before they were removed from their indigenous food systems. So there's just so much health out there, you know, for people in general. Absolutely. Um, Can you give like, is there an example of like a specific food that you encountered along the way that um, sort of represents this, this food, um, 
this aspect of health as compared to the colonial diet diets that have been imposed on people? Well, I mean, I think with the work that we're doing really, um, you know, it works all around the world with any indigenous cultures because I think indigenous cultures around the world throughout the Americas, throughout Southeast Asia, Hawaii, New Zealand, Australia, India, Africa, you know, we see all these areas that were directly impacted by um, very Eurocentric colonialist practices um, and how devastating that's been on culture throughout the entire world. Um, so there's just so much diversity out there, but the commonalities is what we're looking at um, are those really beautiful diet pieces of, you know, just lots of seeds and nuts, a lot of great proteins, a lot of really um, fresh local vegetables and vegetation that's right around you and just an immense amount of plant diversity. Because you think about it today, pro people probably live off of less than 20, you know, plant species for the most part of the year because they go to the store and they buy the exact same stuff. You know, you get your lettuce and your tomato and your potato, your onion and your garlic and you'll start to lose count you know by the time before you even hit 20 if you're lucky or I mean if you know you know what I mean but um, there's but with indigenous diets there's just so much more out there when you start to learn um, you know just botany in general and looking around and not calling everything a weed that you see outside the window but taking the time to learn the properties of it for food for medicine for crafting for whatever it has to offer and realizing that all plants have something to offer like everything has a purpose everything has a name um, and there's just you know so many pieces and it's so regional so it's hard you can't lump it all together you can't say like what's a typical you know native american dish because it's, you know, it's saying like what's a typical european dish there's too much right. diversity in the culture there so there's really beautiful pieces in all of our separate regions and um, we share definitely we share a lot of food pieces and it's more just being aware of your particular you know surroundings when it comes to the plant world and trying to reconnect because it's something that we've all come so far away we're like we don't even think twice about where our food comes from you know somebody hands us a plate of food or you know just going through the school line right and getting some food and you don't know where these eggs are coming from if they're even real right or you know you just don't even question you know when was this potato grown since you know it came from a frozen stock and from which land and from where and like how much time and energy did it take to get over to this plate you know so we're just so completely disconnected of what food arrives on our plate in front of us and we're just so spoiled about that convenience factor of not having to do anything about it because we can just go out and get it whatever we want whenever we feel like it and we should be much better connected with our food you know there's a lot to be said for growing your own food um, to supporting people growing food around you um, and utilizing all that and keeping all those food um, just keeping that community alive and vibrant with uh, a huge diversity of food in your own community can you talk a little about you know one of the differences between kind of the western way of relating to food and the indigenous way across the americas and probably across the globe is kind of a mindset about how you connect with food the harvesting the preparation and even the serving of food and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to kind of what you see as some of the differences or explaining a little bit about what is the indigenous mindset of relating to, to food. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's really just about that hyper-local regional sense of being so connected with the region that you're from and celebrating the foods that are right there because they're the foods that you know best because, again, it comes from thousands of years of experience Whereas a colonial Eurocentric mindset on foods was really spreading out across the world, taking resources that weren't even that valuable to the indigenous cultures, you know, because sure, like gold and silver and things like that were great pieces, but food and community and land were much more valuable than, you know, some of those, than those minerals that um, 
the the colonial aspect was kind of going after. And when colonialism hap- is happening, it's also leaving settlers around to oversee to continue to pull resources from those regions to pull them back to, you know, whatever government that they're coming from. And they're also bringing their own food systems, you know. So for things like fry bread for Native America, it's insane to think that fry bread would be the one piece that represents all Native American culture when it doesn't even have anything to do with the history of the Native American people here. You know, it's just like the banh mi for Vietnam. Like, it's just something that doesn't fit in, but it has been integrated into the cultures now. So, you know, if you go to a a Vietnamese restaurant, then you're going to find a banh mi with French bread, you know. So... Um, but it's really for indigenous cultures, it's just celebrating that deep set knowledge of many, many, many generations of this beautiful foodways of the natural world. And if there was agriculture, these, you know, highly um, respected seeds that have been around for so long um, and the continuation of all those. So just enough human human interaction with these plants to make sure that they're ha- happy and the immense amount of respect and prayer um, and hope that goes into those foods to bring more and more for the future. What does that look like in practice as well? Like when you're harvesting, is is there something different? Like is there a song or is there um, just a different practice in terms of harvesting that you would see as distinct from kind of American farming, for example? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at industrial American farming, that's completely on a, a separate spectrum, you know. So we do put a lot of respect into the plants when we're harvesting. We do lay down tobacco when we're gathering foods. And, you know, there there are old songs of uh, the songs that people would sing when they were harvesting for certain pieces. And a lot of prayer and respect went into that. And a lot of offerings for after gathering, too. Because, you know, you these foods will just be out for a couple of weeks when you're gathering wild foods and then they're gone for the whole year so it was really important for people to be living with that seasonal mindset of being able to go out and grab those foods when they could but also not trying to hurt those plants or you know also leaving some for the earth and for the animals so those plants continue to grow and the animals are also have something to eat and it's really just that balance of living within the ecosystem around you and understanding how it all works and how fragile it is also so um, you know when you're looking at you know monoculture and pieces like that and trying to genetically force foods to grow in certain ways to produce certain things and you know it's a completely opposite spectrum and so out of balance and you know just so far away from where we should be for uh, looking at foods because um, we believe um, you know with our work through the nonprofit that we created and hoping to be able to help um, introduce indigenous food businesses across um, tribal regions everywhere that we're hoping that those food businesses inside those small communities will help develop their own micro food systems where we can give people the education to help develop their own community gardens utilizing seeds that are um, heirloom heritage ancestral native seeds that have been growing in those regions for so long and grow well in those areas on top of um, you know really pushing for permaculture design of putting food everywhere you know just getting rid of giant empty lots and just putting up food trees all around town of things that will be particular and traditional to those regions and those people to be able to utilize on a much larger scale so you don't have to wander around looking for these foods but actually find a place for them to grow well and to take care of them as they grow forward in the future. I wanted to ask you about sort of the the challenges and maybe strategies you develop for translating culture to the sort of colonial um, you know restaurant and food system because we have as you were saying before 
um, a lot of these, you know, the disconnection within um, the American food system is reflected even in language. Me and Tegan were talking about, you know, you could say cow versus beef. Like, you know, you, you don't even call the, you know, there's a different word for what you're eating than from the actual animal itself, which um, in my experience with um, indigenous languages tends not to be a distinction that's made. There's a real recognition of this is this animal gave itself for you um, to live. And I wanted to ask, how do you, yeah, just how do you work on translating that? Because that can be a huge challenge, especially when you say, you know, you're, there's so many cultures that if anyone's, re- you know, familiar with native food, it's fry bread. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I guess part of that is just helping to design, you know, what a framework will look like for all of us to grow forward with our own regions, because there are so many regions to tackle. And we have worked really hard on our particular region around the Dakota and Minnesota Territory area. Um, and to really help develop and, um, you know, identify foods and looking for the foods and the languages that are originally there. Um, there, But there is a lot of work, and that's why we really chose to kind of go with a nonprofit design to be the vehicle to help us get this stuff, this education out there and to help us to develop more resources around the indigenous food education too, just to kind of like help light up a path for other people to hopefully follow and it's really about laying that framework for the future so the next generation of kids will have this laid down and they'll be able to build it even higher um, down the road. Yeah, so you started out with this catering company, which has been great because you've been able to do events in a lot of different places and showcase different foods. It's different than a restaurant where you have to have, you know, one menu all the time. So I've been kind of following you online. You have great online presence so people can (laughs) learn about your food. And then I've been noticing that you you now just are launching this nonprofit. So maybe you could tell us a little more in detail about the what you're planning to do with the nonprofit and the food hubs. Sure. So the nonprofit is called Natives and it's spelled N-A-T-I-F-S. So natives.org is the website that we've set up for the nonprofit. Um, and it's been um, a solid year and a half of really slowly developing it to try to get it out there. And we just officially launched it a couple of months ago. And we should have our official 501c3 status by the end of this year. Um, um, so moving forward with the nonprofit, so Natives stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. Um, and we have two main goals or focuses, I guess. Um, one is Indigenous culinary education, and the other one is Indigenous food access. Because what we're really trying to do is just um, make a change, especially for Indigenous communities when it comes to food. And the biggest issues around food and all these illnesses we see um, with type 2 diabetes and obesity and heart disease and allergies and all these kinds of things that pop up really heavily is really centered around really poor food access and um, just education around healthy food in general because, you know, uh, you know, growing up on the reservation, like having commodity food as my main food source um, outside of growing up on a ranch where we did hunt and we did have some, um, you know, cattle and stuff like that. So we did have access to fresh meats. But overall, I could just so used to eating canned foods and things growing up and none of those things taste good and they don't really do any good for you. So we feel like, um, you know, restaurants are really probably the worst business plan model in the world, but um, we feel like restaurants can be really important and really impactful for communities. And our hopes and our goals are is that we are opening up an indigenous food hub in the Minneapolis area to start with, since that's where we're based, where we will have a restaurant that will be under the nonprofit and a um, 
training center, which we're calling the Indigenous Food Lab, which will give us an opportunity to hire educators to teach about the various aspects of the indigenous food systems that we've been slowly breaking out in curriculum form. So everything from indigenous agriculture to wild foods and ethnobotany and plant identification, um, you know, within agriculture there's also seed saving and soil management and farming styles and things like that. Um, there's cooking techniques, there's food preservation techniques, there's, you know, the utilizing things uh, like understanding how people gather salts, fats, and sugars and cooking with ash, wood ash and plant ash and things like that, regional histories, and basically everything that's in that um, indigenous food map that we developed that you can find on natives.org. Um, and having a place to have that. So our next step will be to help reach out to indigenous communities and help them to develop their own food business that will be particular to their tribe, their land, their history, and their people. Um, so each restaurant that we create will be unique, and we want that tribal area to own and operate that restaurant so that money continues to stay within that community, um, offering job skills um, and jobs in general, and just changing the way people think about their own traditional foods and, get, and creating that food access of at least there's some place to get healthy indigenous foods that are that pertain to those regions. So we see these satellites around the food hub um, being uh, part of this larger network that will have a lot more impact on those communities that just don't have anything. Like some of them just have like one or two restaurants that might be a Subway and like a Taco John's or something weird, you know, um, and just nothing healthy at all. Like so hard to find healthy food in some of those really rural and remote areas. Um, and then what we want to do is be able to replicate all those models so we can start to stamp them out all around the country. So our goal is to take the uh, urban indigenous food hub with the restaurant and indigenous food lab training center and move that around the nation. So we pick any big city. So you can pick Seattle. Um, you can pick Portland, Phoenix, Denver, Boston, wherever you want to, whatever is a good center. And then satellite around those regions to the, you know, whatever tribes and communities are in that area that could utilize that direct impact um, and just changing the way people think about food and also changing, you know, the perception of what is true American food, because it's obviously not hamburger and Coca-Cola because we have such you know, deep set knowledge with um, indigenous food across the country. And it's the same for Canada, Alaska, Mexico. We want to be able to slowly impact all of North America. And hopefully we can work with other partners who can utilize some of these same methods on a worldwide scale who can also help to preserve and push forward a lot of this indigenous culture based around food systems to help, you know, preserve and identify those for the future, for future generations and the children of these next generations to take it and have have it, you know, because if we continue to go down the path around, we're just going to continue to create, you know, to uh, a lot of these um, indigenous food systems are just going to become extinct little by little as we as it's moving towards a more homogenous kind of um, way with that colonial mindset. But we can change the course and create a much healthier community based food system style and model that will bring with it a lot more health in general. Yeah. What you're doing is really powerful, and it's interesting. I see it happening in communities, different communities across the country, like within the African-American community and Latino communities in our city, people are also, and around the country, people are also using food as this catalyst for bringing people together for liberation, for kind of um, valuing their culture and and building community and kind of gaining strength and and using that as a tool. And so it's so deep the way that you're doing it. Like I've, I'm, I have 
spent the past day with you and just looking at the integrity that you have and the way you do your work and kind of the the depth of learning that you've done in terms of like looking at your gorgeous cookbook and um, just getting to witness this journey that you've been on for, you know, two decades, I guess, almost. So it's just really powerful to kind of watch how far you've come in this ev- evolution of this work. And I think that this component of doing these food hubs is is really important because you know, you're one person, your your team in your kitchen is maybe 10 people or something. So mm-hmm. um, how to grow that. And then, as you're saying, being respectful of the fact that this is very localized and very regional. And so that you're not trying to build a franchise and say, we're going to take Plains area food and put it out on the East Coast or on the West Coast. Right. right? And so one of the things I'm sort of curious about, because I've done some of the, a lot of this community building work around food is what are some of the concrete things that you're doing in your area as the first food hub to build community, to kind of connect with people who are going to be those first new educators or finding more chefs or people who want to start food businesses and kind of that on the ground relationship building, networking kind of things that you're doing to to start building that, that first food hub. Well, you know, we've been working pretty hard in our area. So we've had our catering uh, company out, which is extremely unique because we're using only regional indigenous foods and we've cut out all colonial ingredients. So there's, you know, no dairy, no wheat flour, no processed sugar, no beef, no pork or chicken. And we also had the Tatanka truck, which was our food truck that we had originally developed for the Little Earth um, community, which is the urban native community within Minneapolis. Um, And we developed it and designed it, named it, and hired and trained um, everybody for it so there would be access to this healthy indigenous food, um, which we eventually ended up purchasing from them completely um, and ran for, we had the Tatanka truck out for uh, about two and a half years, and we finally just sold it to one of the other tribal regions in the state as we're getting ready to push for this larger vision with the restaurants and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's just showcasing in that community um, for us and um, developing a really strong repertoire um, for for the kind of work that we're doing. And, you know, just showcasing that we can elevate these indigenous foods to a level where the mainstream will get it. Um, but it's also just going to be, you know, really out there for our, our tribal communities to be able to celebrate when they can and to be training, you know, another generation of young chefs to be able to develop their own philosophy around it and move on and, you know, hopefully create more indigenous food businesses out there because there's still very few indigenous food businesses around the country. Um, And, you know, we don't want to control all of it by any means. We want other people to open up and design and develop, you know, their own ways around it. And it's fine if people want to fusionize indigenous foods. There's really no rules to it. Um, We just enjoy keeping ourselves in our own box that we created of trying to think about regional and localized foods and how much impact that can have and just understanding the foundations of it first before we you know move forward and some stretch out around the whole nation Um, and there's nothing wrong with offering and you know mixing up plates and mixing up um, communities because you know if you had salmon and uh, wild rice and chilies and papa all in one plate it's going to taste awesome but you know that's showcasing food pieces from all different nations around the country um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of great work that we can do, and we feel like our community around the Minneapolis and Minnesota has been very warm and welcoming, and you know we've made ourselves a big part of that uh, community when it comes to indigenous foods and working with 
farms like Dream Wild Health, which is a native-run farm, um, and getting um, helping to find a place for uh, a lot of these indigenous products to be utilized heavily, you know, because we can almost purchase as much as they can bring, and being able to like develop our businesses so we purchase from indigenous food vendors first always, um, and then anybody in our community developing indigenous foods to be able to utilize, and you know, like buying organic is like on the bottom of the scale because it doesn't really mean anything. We, we of course love organic food, but having the title organic doesn't really mean anything when we are directly connected to the people growing the food and knowing how they're doing it with their practices and, you know, carefully selecting those vendors as we move forward. Because, you know, me as a chef, I haven't used a big box truck style food for uh, probably a, over a decade. <laughs> you know, we just there's no use for the Cisco's and U.S. foods out there in the kind of in the line of work that we're doing when we're, you know, able to design menus centered around the food that's directly available to us and being grown and produced in our own community. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk a little about some of your recipes, like using sunchokes and sumac and choke cherries and... Sure. Are there some that are favorites? or? Well, we just love cooking in season. We love cooking with ever, whatever region you're, we're in. And, you know, like we, we have just finished doing the James Beard House dinner in Manhattan the other night. Um, and it was a lot of fun just to research the foods of this region um, and look for vendors and growers of trying to find the agricultural products of seeds. So we were able to come up with, you know, we're using things like the Mohawk red bread corn and this white potato bean and this buckskin brown bean um, and just all this beautiful corn product and this Cherokee blue um, corn um, and it was really fun and then finding um, you know indigenous uh, like a, an indigenous fisher fish, fishery uh, it was red thunder fishery um, and just all that beautiful um, product like the quahogs and the Shinnecock oysters and lobster and it's just like stuff that I don't have in the plains you know right. but you know since we're on the plains we do see a lot of uh, rootstock like sunchoke and we see a lot of uh, timsala which is the prairie turnip we have a ton of wild ginger all the wild ramps that pop up we have fiddlehead ferns in the springtime you know we use a lot of pine and cedar we use a lot of um, syrups from maple of course and but you can also do black walnut um, and birch and there's just a whole bunch of cool stuff out there around us and it's fun to make foods taste like a certain area you know so um, I think during the presentation there's a slide of this big pan of rabbit and it's got cedar and rose hips and um, uh, maple and cranberries and it's just like all these little pieces you would find walking around a lake in Minnesota and seeing like all that flavor just right there in front of you and you can create entire you know menus off of just right right around you so it's a lot of fun to think about that and again it's just being connected with the plants and seeing food and medicine everywhere around you um, and being able to as a chef like have so much more to explore when it comes to food and flavor and region and season um, to represent whatever's going on right at that moment. Yeah, so with that rabbit dish, were you braising that with the Yeah, the we would just let it slow stew because just thinking about food techniques, you know, if you're here a couple of hundred years ago or a few hundred years ago or whatever it might be and like just really simple methods of cooking, you know, over fire or making earthen ovens or letting things set, sit in a pot with water next to a fire for a really long time, um, grounding things into powder, using a lot of dried food stock um, to season foods um, and reconstituting a lot of those dried foods and just, you know, 
those are the flavors that we kind of try to shoot for in the methods of cooking. So like just letting things slow cook at a really low temperature for a really long time until these meats are fall apart and all those flavors are really strongly incorporated um, and just making really simple, beautiful foods. And we can still like, you know, just like with that James Beard dinner, we could take these beautiful, simple pieces and put them together, um, utilizing a lot of our own personal artistry to make them look beautiful and make them look just as good as any high-end restaurant that's out there around the world um, and have fun with it, you know. And, you know, it's fun for us because we are taking a different approach to food and, you know, a lot of restaurants that come through the James Beard, they have their you know, uh, hierarchy of the chefs and everything. And, but we were able to, you know, bring, um, we had a, a 12 year old girl with us that was Mohawk from this region. And we're so happy to be able to share that with a different generation and that experience of cooking for some of the cooking in a restaurant that's housed some of the best chefs in the entire world for the past couple of decades. Um, and all the beauty of like keeping that knowledge, um, growing, um, as we're moving forward. What's the response that pe- some people have, because you use modern cooking techniques, as you said, kind of your stuff looks gorgeous, like a super high-end restaurant. But um, in terms of Native people's um, response to your food, do people feel like it's inaccessible? and Or are people understanding that you're kind of trying to are people understanding what you're trying to do with the food? And no, I think uh, everybody really gets it for the most part because even though we do get a lot of the attention on the fancy plates that look really nice, um, and, but even those plates, we're just using really simple things. Yeah. Like all the pieces are very simple pieces that anybody could do. And we're just showcasing people that it is just healthy, beautiful food and feel free to put your own artistry on it or just eat it as it is because it's going to be just as good um, as it is. So, And we're not trying to turn this into a fad. You know, this is really just how indigenous people have ate for so long um, as far as just those healthy pieces. You know, each of those foods are beautiful just the way they are. Um, And even though we're bringing this into the mainstream, that's just helping us create more awareness around it. So people realize that there's indigenous history because no matter where you are in North America, indigenous histories begin first. um, And everybody should have a deeper understanding of that. And all of that, that again, that thousands of years of experience, you know, there's a lot of value in that compared to a couple hundred years of Eurocentric colonialist ideal ideology, you know, when it comes to how things should be done, because there's Im- immense problems with the food systems of today and how this country was even designed in a sense. So um, we should be taking a lot of the lessons of the past and especially these tribes and communities that have been here for thousands of years and how they treated their food and the ecosystem and the plants around them to really create something healthy and unique in the, in the areas that were, that they were in. So we just, we see a lot of beauty out there. Can you talk about this process of um, re-identifying North American cuisine? I think about the fact in like the Southeast that um, cornbread is a native food and people, but it's been sort of lost its identity, you know, and if people, I think about how it's synonymous with being extra white (laughs) now, you know, you call someone cornbread, but um, (laughs) I think about the fact that, you know, cornbread and grits and succotash and beans and catfish and so many different things that, and, or even with the Manhattan cuisine that you were talking about, you know, oysters and quahogs, I think for a lot of Northeasterners don't automatically think of native cuisine, but they are, an essential part of it. And I wanted to ask just um, how do you bring that awareness back when you're entering, you know, this mainstream where there's been appropriation already? Um, yeah, for sure. And, you know, we want people to celebrate these foods that are here because um, there's a lot of generations of 
um, European families that have grown up on these lands, of course, and of course. have been here. And it's only going to enrich in them to have a deeper understanding of more foods and more flavor and more health around them because the indigenous communities really took the time to learn all the plants around them to utilize them in their food systems and different techniques of food preservation and smoking um, and all those methods. So it is re-identifying North American food um, instead of just, again, you know, instead of having hamburger be the basis of all American food or poutine be the basis of all Canadian food because um, there's so many micro regions and there's so many unique pieces and you know out here being able to use flavors like lobster and quahogs and pawpaw um, and all of these beautiful things that have been around for thousands of years that the indigenous communities have were you know mainstays on their diets and pieces that they've been using for a long long time um, so there's just a lot to think about it's just reconnecting people with the foods right around them again and you know getting people to understand that a lot of those foods that were based um, here with corn especially you know and beans and squash um, that there is deep indigenous roots to those foods and they have been here for a long time and there were much simpler ways to producing things you don't have to add you know cans of cream of, mu cream of mushroom and you know pounds of butter to everything that you cook um, and the foods are beautiful just in very simple preparation techniques and um, there's a lot you can do with it but it's just getting people to be aware of you know how recent Native American culture is and how vibrant it still is today throughout communities everywhere and you know we don't we're not asking people to go out and start opening up Native American restaurants on their own. If they're not Native American, we want them to celebrate and identify and realize the foods and go ahead and use them. But, you know, it's up to really the, the indigenous and Native American communities out there to develop their own restaurants and to because they're going to put a lot of spirituality that there is their own personal belief into their food systems too. So the cultural appropriation piece is really, you know, it's great for everybody to um, celebrate these foods and to learn how to sustainably harvest these foods and to not to damage the ecosystem when going out foraging and to understand the, the really delicate balance of how these plants work and to take a lot of care and practice with them and hopefully learn from the indigenous communities that have had those knowledges for so long. Yeah, it's really important, I think, that we have so much appropriation of culture in this country because the, the main culture most people follow is capitalism, yeah. wanting to make money. Yeah, and Americanized, so, Americanized everything is just yeah. a term for whatever. So <laughs> That's right. And I think with food and restaurants in particular, that happens. And are you concerned about that? happening? I mean, I guess it's sort of happening already. And You know, we just try to steer it um, into the proper direction. So, you know, if somebody does open up a Native restaurant and they're not Native and they don't have Native staff, um, like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's restaurant out in Napa, then they're going to have a lot of hard conversations with people because they are appropriating those foods and that land in the region. And it could be done a lot better if they take the time to, you know, maybe work with some of the indigenous communities and help keep the food dollars in those areas and, you know, to do it right. But it's really up to the indigenous communities to develop their own because for us we see this as more of a food evolution it's you know breaking free from those chains of oppression and poverty that we've been stuck in for so long um, and celebrating these food systems and traditions that have been with our um, communities for thousands of years again and being able to do something beautiful and vibrant with it in today's world and you know we're not trying to do a timepiece and do everything from 1491 we're trying to take all this knowledge from the past utilize all 
the tools we have of now and to create something bigger and stronger with it for everybody to enjoy. Um, and food and sharing is such a big part of indigenous communities um, anyways. You know, we want uh, we don't want to keep it all for ourselves. We want, you know, people to enjoy and realize that this is the base of it. You can't get more American than these foods because they've been here longer than America was a term. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one example of something that I loved that you showed a slide yesterday in your talk about in your kitchen, you had the Hubbard squash seeds and another squash seeds that in your kitchen when you had cut open a squash, you'd actually scooped out the seeds and you were drying them to return them to the farmers. And I think it's like being conscious of that cycle is that's really profound. Like we can't get most restaurants to even compost their food waste, (laughs) (laughs) no less like do seed saving in their kitchens. Yeah, it's so important. And we just have to, again, have that um, indigenous mindset moving forward. So as we're creating an indigenous kitchen um, in real time, we're having to, you know, train our our generations of cooks to implement ways like that. So when we're working with these really uh, rare heirloom native seeds that uh, have been just as as resilient as the people that are here alive today in indigenous communities, that we have to understand the value of those and each of those seeds has carries a lot of power and tradition and history behind it too so you don't want to just throw all that away you want to be able to save those seeds and give them back into the hands of the farmers um, so they can grow more because one squash is going to have hundreds of seeds which will create hundreds more fruit Um, so it's just really important to carry those things on because especially with culinary groups you're kind of the last line of the food you know um, of what you're going to do with it and for us we've chosen only to make healthy food you know we haven't made a single piece of fry bread since we've been open at all and we're okay with that we just want to serve healthy food we feel it's kind of being responsible as chefs to do that I mean we love um, all foods like we love to go out and try different stuff and see what other people have to offer but you know when you're eating something it's going to make you not feel good you know Mm -hmm. so we want to make food that's going to make people feel good and represent the land and season and history and people that we're serving it to when we're in these different communities and regions yeah. No, I don't know if you want to read this piece, but this is from the um, food system model. And these four points that you have are really powerful. Do you want to? Of course. So it um, begins with understanding the foundations of indigenous food systems. So one, removal of colonized thought. Two, reconnect spiritually, mentally, physically with the natural world. Three, understand and build indigenous foundations. Four, Regain, retain, share, and practice knowledge. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of those principles and um, or foundations for an indigenous food system. Yeah. Um, so I remember when I started building that food map, I just woke up like at 3.30 in the morning with it blazed on my brain, and I just started typing it out and putting it together like I envisioned it. And it was just those really simple rule sets of being able to you know, how do you decolonize your diet and how do you go about understanding an indigenous food system? And I just wanted to keep it as simple as possible. Um, and it was just one of those things that just like popped into my brain and I had to like get it out right away. And that's what that was born of. <laughs> it was pretty much I did that in one sitting, basically. Nice. And it's developed more because we keep adding pieces to it a little bit as we go but for the most part you know it just kind of came out but again it's just you know we just want to help steer people into that right direction and we want to help you know if we're forging a path we want to try and do it right and we want to be able to um, share it with people and we want to practice it every day so we just try to write all that out as we were as as we were thinking it 
Yeah, yeah, it's powerful. So people can find this on your website, right? On yep, if they go to natives.org or they can go to our website at the Sioux Chef, which is uh, the Sioux-Chef, so S-I-O-U-X-Chef.com. Um, and there's links to the cookbook, and there's a whole bunch of great videos of our work there um, and links to natives and just a, a bunch of fun stuff and bios about our team and things like that. Yeah, you have quite a team of chefs. It's great. <laughs> it's fun, and we're growing. And that you know, again, with the nonprofit, we're going to be able to grow even bigger and better. Like we're just going to. The best part was reaching out and creating a cool board, and you know, having all these other minds uh, work, get together so we can start working on a focused project that can do an immense amount of impact. Um, um, it's our hopes and goals. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're well set on your path, and, <laughs> and what you're doing is really amazing. I hope everyone gets to check out your cookbook. It's really exceptional. And and I wish I lived out in Minneapolis so I could come <laughs> yeah. eat at your restaurant. Well, we'll, we'll get some to out here it. too. Yeah, yeah it'll absolutely. happen. Absolutely, people are ready. <laughs> yes. Ready. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank yeah. you guys for thank having you. me. Yeah, thanks for the talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Table Underground. You can check us out on any podcasting site and find out more information on our website, thetableunderground.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Many thanks to Noah Schlager for co-hosting, to Austin Berniarski, the Yale Sustainable Food Program, and the Native American Cultural Center for inviting Sean Sherman to speak. And of course, to Dana Thompson of The Sous Chef for her exceptional organizing skills, dedication, and kindness. 